Welcome to Injury Prevention Podcasts. My name is Rod McClure. I'm editor of the BMJ journal Injury Prevention, and each month I chat with a distinguished researcher or practitioner, and together we explore the narrative of their injury prevention careers. My guest today is Professor Denise Kendrick, Professor of Primary Care Research, Faculty of Medicine and Health Sciences at the University of Nottingham. Hello, Denise. Hello, Rod. Could you tell me where you are at the moment, please? Uh, Yes, I'm in Nottingham in England. And who do you work for? Uh, I have a a dual role. I firstly work as a general practitioner in an ex-coal mining community in the north of Nottinghamshire. And I also work at the University of Nottingham as a professor of primary care research. So have you been a GP all your career? Um, I started off um, in general practice. I did my hospital jobs and then I did my general practice training. And I finished that at the age of 27, which felt like um, a very young age um, to be making a decision about my long term career. At that time in England, in general practice, people people had uh, practices and they stayed in the same practice for life. It's not quite the same these days. Um, So at that point, I wasn't ready to. Um, commit myself to one practice for life and um, so I did a year's job as a community paediatrician in a disadvantaged area uh, in Bristol uh, and during that time I decided that I wanted to um, study public health so I also um, did the public health training course um, in in Trent uh, which is uh, uh, an area in the, Mid- in the Midlands in, in England um, and that's how I came to Nottingham. Um, Perhaps three years after I started my public health training, I went back into general practice. So I've had three years of not having any patient contact other than doing family planning clinics, which I sort of did in my own time just to keep some contact. And I really miss the patient contact. And um, also something something uh, quite personal happened, which was um, uh, my aunt um, died of breast cancer. And um, I'd seen just how important her GP had been to her. Um, because she had a really good relationship with her GP and really trusted her. And it, it just struck me that, you know, I could be that person for somebody else. And um, so at that point, I decided to go back into general practice. So I did half-time general practice and half-time public health medicine at that point. Um, and then uh, as part of my public health training, I started um, becoming interested in uh, child injury prevention and I got a lectureship at the university. So I was half-time a lecturer in public health and half-time a general practitioner. And I've continued with, with you know, general practice and an academic career since then. Denise, there's a really nice um, pathway you've described through there, but some of the terminology we're using may not be common to the uh, health industries of the listeners to this program. We use the term general practice and primary care. I think you're using it interchangeably. What does a general practitioner do in the UK context or what did they do at the time you were going through this period? Um, so they would work in a, in a um, community setting um, in, as an independent practitioner. So um, each general practice uh, was like its own small business, but responsible for the uh, primary health care of its registered patient population. So it provided primary health care services to uh, uh, patients, as, we, as we've always called it, from, the, from sort of birth to the grave, really. 
Right. So you became involved in, and, and I started off saying this was a, a pathway or a story that you've been walking through, but each day you turn up to the office, so to speak, the practice, you become part of somebody else's life story. Is that is that what you're getting at? Yes, absolutely. But uh, but also, you know, obviously gives you lots of opportunities um, to interact with patients over a very long period of time. Because, like I said, most people in general practice uh, used to stay in their practices for, for their life. And in fact, I've been in my practice now for 22 years. And um, so you get to know your patients really well and you get to know the children of your patients. And I'm now getting to know the grandchildren of the patients I originally knew when I when I started the practice uh, 22 years ago. Um, so you develop really long-term relationships with people, and that is, you know, fantastic. And it's also, I think, really helpful in terms of in terms of trying to help people make changes to their lives and to improve their health. And I'm going to springboard because I have advantages that uh, most of us listening to this don't have at the moment, that I've read some of your very recent work and some of the proposals that you've been putting in and have now uh, undertaking uh, research in, albeit somewhat constrained by the COVID world we're living in, in those same households to help change the behaviours and change the households, uh, the, the features of those households, and then examine in using high-quality science the effects of the changes you're trying to make in terms of some particular outcome. Can you talk about that research? And we can actually see almost immediately why you're in that territory, given the background you've just described. Okay, I think I think there's there's probably three sort of good examples. One is is um, trying to prevent children's injuries in the home environment, and obviously in primary care we have so many contacts with preschool children, so children aged you know, under five years, um, both as acute consultations when they're presenting with usually uh, minor illness, but also as part of preventive health services. So there's a, a child health screening program in the UK with regular contacts with, with um, parents and their children. And that's not only just a GP, that's other members of the primary health care team, but also includes health visiting team and practice nurses. There are, there are obviously opportunities for um, uh, promoting um, uh, child injury prevention. And a lot of my work has been around trying to prevent home injuries in terms of uh, parental education and trying to make structural changes to the home environment through the provision fitting of home safety equipment. And then another example would be some of my work on trying to help older people become more physically active and reduce their risk of falls. Again, older people are a population that we see very commonly in primary care. And we also see people uh, when they've had falls or when they are worried about falling. And these are people who we can try and intervene in terms of trying to prove their physical exercise and, and give them strength and balance training to try and reduce their risk of future falls. And some of the studies that I've, I've um, worked on or been involved in or led have um, been trying to uh, increase people's um, physical activity and with the impact of uh, trying to reduce, reduce their falls. And then my most recent work. Um, Can I interrupt you here just before you go into the third one, just to yeah. try and tease out some detail of those two. And uh, one was early life and one was towards the, the latter years of life. Mm -hmm. And yet you found some commonalities in that. I want to ask you about the methods you used. Because in both of those, you talked about risk factors or, or 
things about the people that made them more likely to have injuries uh, that, that put them at risk, either their development stage or their frailty stage. And then you also mentioned almost at the same breath that there were some things about the environments these people were in that you could change. How do you do a piece of research in that sort of space? How do you know what you're doing is good science? I, I think that um, the methods for, for undertaking this kind of research have really progressed over over the course of, of you know the last 20, 20 years ago. So I think we're much better now at making sure that any interventions that we develop are based on sound theory. I think we are better at exploring all the potential pitfalls of of de delivering an intervention with feasibility studies. When I first started in my career, nobody did feasibility studies prior to randomised controlled trials. Um, whereas nowadays, it's very, very unusual to be able to get funding for a randomised controlled trial without having done the feasibility study and shown it's actually feasible to deliver the intervention. Um, and then obviously to try and test things with rigorous methodologies. The most common methodologies that I've used are randomised controlled trials. Um, but I've also um, had quite a lot of experience of doing systematic reviews and meta-analyses, so pulling together the information from lots of lots of studies to try and answer questions that require large patient numbers to be able to answer them. Right, so you do the feasibility studies to make sure you can deliver a faithful intervention the same way, in, in a relatively practical way, so that you can cope with the resource requirements of that. What about, um, how does the randomization actually um, work so that what's the sort of intervention you might do in a child household or a household with children uh, to ensure that some are exposed and some are not exposed what are the exposures you're talking about what are the interventions you're talking about okay so the, so the kind of um, trials that I've done I've done trials of purely educational interventions so for example I've done a randomized controlled trial of a baby walker intervention where midwives and health visitors gave advice to parents before the birth of the baby and after the birth of the baby about baby walkers and the risks that they pose. Um, and we um, randomly allocated um, parents to either have that advice or just to have usual care. And usual care is just whatever the health visitor or midwife normally provide. Uh, and, yeah, and then we follow up those people and we measure whether they use baby walkers or not. Right, no, that, 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 clears, that clarifies things. So, and then I interrupted, you were going to mention your third type of studies that you've been doing. Yeah, so in more recent years, um, I've been working with, with um, other colleagues, firstly, trying to measure the longer term impacts of injuries and the effects that they have on patients, and then trying to develop interventions to help minimize some of those impacts. And so at the moment, we have a large programme of work, which is developing an intervention to help people get back to work after serious injury. We know that up to a, up to a third of patients haven't been admitted to hospital, aren't back at work a year after their injury. Um, and so we're developing an intervention to try and help people get back to work after injury. And then we're going to test its feasibility in a feasibility study. And then if it's feasible to deliver in the study will go on and test it in a randomized controlled trial. Given that so many of us in injury prevention come to, into this field from different disciplines, uh, do you think the way we understand and, and work in injury prevention to some extent is determined by our 
initial undergraduate training or our particular professional position? Because you've just described some research which is around child development, uh, aging populations, and post-injury recovery. Now, for the uninformed, they would probably, if they even if you didn't describe yourself as such, pick you as a doctor in injury prevention as opposed to a engineer in injury prevention. Can you respond to that discussion? Because we do have engineers in injury prevention. How does it all fit together? Uh, I think it's it's becoming increasingly important to work in a multidisciplinary team. And I think all of my projects that I've worked on over the years have been in multidisciplinary teams. Um, uh, because the, the interventions that we are we are delivering are really complex interventions. So they often have multiple interacting components. And so it's not just about changing somebody's behavior necessarily. So for example, one of the trials that I ran several years ago um, was um, to try and reduce the risk of bathwater skulls by fitting thermostatic mixing valves into patients' homes um, uh, who lived in, in social housing. Um, and that actually involved that actually involved <laughs> members of the research team going to the thermostatic mixing valve manufacturers and actually seeing how they manufactured the valves and actually sticking our hands into water of different temperatures um, uh, with the valves working or not working as the case, case may be. And then working with people who actually fitted the valves into people's homes. Um, so it is a really multidisciplinary area. You know, my interest has obviously been um, influenced by the people that I come into contact with on a day-to-day -day basis, because you see the impact of injuries on their lives. And that I think is what, you know, is what interests you and what, what makes you want to make a difference to, to people. So I think that's obviously highly influenced the, the areas that I've chosen, chosen to work in and the areas where I feel I can perhaps make a difference. Mm, it makes a lot of sense. And just to finish with, you are involved in university and you initially were doing quite a lot of lecturing. Was your teaching to healthcare uh, undergraduates or um, public health graduates or medical graduates? How does how does your teaching actually fit into the story you've been telling us so far? Well, as a general practitioner, um, I do I do a lot of sort of generic primary healthcare undergraduate teaching, um, which is not specific to injury prevention at all. Um, so it's you know it's about um, Helping, helping undergraduates gain clinical skills around uh, history taking, ethical issues, those sorts of those sorts of things, communication skills. Right. Um, but in terms of injury prevention, then I've also been involved in training various healthcare professional groups um, in in providing um, uh, injury prevention uh, interventions or in or just in trying to increase their injury prevention knowledge and practice and confidence in delivering injury prevention. And that would include, for example, um, health visiting teams, uh, health visiting students. We've also done training for people who work in children's centres, so that's early years sort of provision, and also for um, lay volunteers who provide home visiting programmes. Thank you, Denise. It, um, one thing that's clear is that you've um, got a broad portfolio and uh, over the course of your career, moved at different stages more intensely through parts of it. Do you feel that there's something you still want to do? Or do you feel that, that it's at this particular stage in your career 
it's maximizing value from the expertise you've currently obtained. And I think one of the really big important issues, uh, and I don't think this is this is specific to my work at all, um, is about implementing the findings of research into practice and understanding just how difficult that is and understanding the contexts um, to enable you to do that. And that is just so important um, because you can do the best research in the world and if nobody if nobody actually implements it in, into practice then um, you know, a huge opportunity has been missed and so over more recent years I've also become much more involved in trying to get our research implemented into practice and in developing tools to try and ensure that that happens and trying to understand the pathways to getting things implemented and it's very complex and always changes in England in the NHS these kind of things change constantly so it's a, it's a constant it's a constant challenge to try and get get things implemented especially when finances are um, scarce and that's a challenge I think we can leave hanging in the air as we close because I completely agree with you that research in a laboratory is somewhat controlled and and unorganized and uh, but as soon as you try and take it then into the real world and try and create the changes you envisage, things become a little bit less easy to manage. And uh, I think if there's research to be done, I, I agree there's some good outcomes that can come from research in that interface between uh, research and practice. Yeah, and there's also a big, a big challenge in terms of making sure that the interventions are delivered as they are meant to be delivered in, you know, as they were delivered in the randomised control trial. So they're delivered with fidelity. Because what happens is they they move out into into practice and then they change, and then you can't necessarily achieve the outcomes that were achieved in the randomised control trial. Exactly. Thank you very much. We've been listening to Professor Denise Kendrick from the University of Nottingham. For anyone wishing to learn more about some of the topics we've covered this morning. I would encourage you to visit the journal's website at injuryprevention.bmj.com. Remember, you can subscribe to Injury Prevention Podcast in your favourite platform or app and have it automatically downloaded to your device each month.